Listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday the 12th of October. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst. Annika, what was it like watching Sydney Siders just go ham on the haircuts and booze yesterday? (laughs) I didn't think it'd be too bad until it happened and then it did just really pinch down here how much it would be great to... Get into a pub, sit down, have a beer, and also, mm. as you say, get a haircut. I think it's been six months. Did you manage to get one? <laughs> no, but I haven't had one for at least four either. But I've got to the stage where I'm like, I'm kind of digging this look. I just don't know what to, whether I should keep it or not. Maybe a lot of people are coming up with new hairstyles during this time. I know there's some pretty interesting ones I'm seeing on Zoom at the moment, so keep it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I tell you who must be laughing at this whole scenario is people in Queensland, WA, Tasmania <laughs> going, yeah, it's no big deal to have a haircut or go for a beer, guys. Chill out. Yeah, especially Melbourne. Look, they've done it twice now. They um, obviously had a few freedoms over summer last year, but have spent a large chunk of this year locked down again, so it'll be a second freedom day when we're finally allowed out here. Yeah, all right. We'll get into that in more detail in a moment. Also, uh, in our briefing, Branson, Bezos and Musk. Yeah, we're talking about the billionaire space race. If they seem competitive from the outside, they're definitely competitive from the inside. There is no (laughs) love loss, I think, between these billionaires. Yeah, we're going to explain what these billionaire space cowboys are actually trying to achieve and what it will mean for ordinary people like us. First, let's get into the headlines, starting with the big news out of New South Wales. The New South Wales Premier has been let off of a fine for standing and drinking a schooner as the state marks its first big step towards living with COVID. We need to open up. We need to get back to the way life was before. And I'm very confident uh, we have the structures in place to ensure we do that safely. I love that Dominic Perrottet was breaking the rules, but, you know, can't blame him for getting a bit overexcited. (laughs) Dan Andrews might think differently. He Mm. was fined recently twice for not wearing a mask. Look, yeah, I think everybody was quite happy to be out and about yesterday and let him off the hook. The Premier and Opposition Leader joined crowds of Sydney siders in getting haircuts, going to the pubs as stores and hospitality venues reopened to fully vaccinated Sydney siders yesterday. Yeah, and there was a lot of focus on haircuts and and beers, but you've got to also think Think of people in aged care facilities who haven't had visitors for nearly four months and they were allowed to have fully vaccinated visitors yesterday. So that must have been a pretty beautiful moment for a lot of those elderly people. Yeah, I saw some great stuff on social media about that. New South Wales recorded 496 new local cases. Now, that's one of the lowest daily totals in almost two months. Yeah, it might be the bottom though. I imagine they might go up a little bit from here, but we're being told that we need to get used to that and just keep an eye on the hospitalisation and death figures. The state's reopening was uh, welcomed by the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Um, He finally left the lodge after another period of quarantine. Today is a day so many have been looking forward to. I'm looking forward to seeing my family as well, having come out of this quarantine. Yeah, New South Wales is really racing along with the vaccination rate as well. There's a chance that we might even hit the 80% double vax target before this Monday, which means the next stage of restrictions could be opened a week earlier than expected. And and you'll love this one. Um, The Everest horse race in Sydney, um, which is Saturday week, not to be outdone by the Melbourne Cup. They've also doubled their crowd capacity to match the Melbourne Cup of 10,000 people. Yeah, that's definitely got nothing to do with the competition between the two cities, does it, Tom? Look, good to see. I'm happy to just have people out and about. I'm not going to be competitive on that one. It's actually a great day. So good to see people returning uh, to sporting events in coming weeks. And it does look like Melbourne is on track to open up 
perhaps, maybe, fingers crossed, a little bit earlier too, hitting those VAX targets a few days ahead of schedule. And this next story shows a next level and possibly a legal devotion to AFL. Two Melbourne Demons fans um, will face court accused of breaching COVID restrictions to sneak into the Western Australian Grand Final. The Melbourne residents are in a Perth jail facing charges for allegedly lying on their entry permits into the state, claiming to be from the Northern Territory. Look, they'll face court in the Territory also because they're accused of falsifying documents to get a Northern Territory driver's licence and bank account before crossing into WA. So amazing effort there. And to think you'd go to all that effort and then pose up for a photo in the club rooms, which got you in trouble. Yeah, so they were seen in videos mixing with Demons players and staff in change rooms and on the pitch following the premiership. These guys were big, big fans. You can so funny. You can make a movie about this. They're also quite well known. One of them's a well-known pub owner in Melbourne. Oh. Uh, and that's quite problematic because people were pointing out who it was. I guess <laughs> they made this calculation in their mind, perhaps. I don't know. When your team gets into a grand final after so long, maybe it was worth it. But they've had a rough few weeks, you would have thought. Good publicity for his pub, I reckon. People, all the Demons fans will probably come in and have a drink. The government and the families of ADF personnel killed by a rogue Afghan soldier say they're disappointed the man's been released from prison. It came as a shock when we did find out uh, that he had been released. Hugh Pote speaking to the ABC there. Mr Pote's son Robert was one of three Australian soldiers murdered by a serving Afghan army soldier known as Hekmatullah in 2012. Yeah, he spent seven years in jail for the killings and then he was moved to house arrest in Doha as part of the US Taliban deal to release prisoners. But then the Defence Department's Hugh Jeffrey yesterday told a Senate inquiry the government believes the former soldier was released following the Taliban's capture of Kabul. So the Australian government became aware of Hekmatullah's release from Qatar through highly sensitive intelligence. We have no confirmed information about his whereabouts. And Prince Charles has called on Scott Morrison to attend the upcoming Glasgow Climate Conference. During a BBC interview, Prince Charles was told that Morrison hadn't confirmed if he'd be coming to the conference, and here's what Prince Charles said. Is that what he says, is he? This is a last chance saloon, literally. Because if we don't really take the decisions that are vital now, it's going to be almost impossible to catch up. The Queen will attend the Glasgow gathering as well as Prince Charles and Prince William, who are also expected to deliver speeches. The British PM Boris Johnson and US President Joe Biden will also be there. Yeah, apparently um, the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern won't be going either, though. A bit of cover for Scott Morrison. I would say, though, Annika, probably committing to net zero is much more important than whether or not he goes to a meeting. Yeah, I've been to a couple of these uh, global summits with Scott Morrison and they're a great chance to get a photo. And if you're Australia, you sometimes get sidelined a little bit. Look, it'd be good to see him there and it'd be good to see him commit. But if you're going to go with one over the other, I agree. If he can commit to net zero and doesn't want to go, it's a long way and you've got to do quarantine again. He has just got out. Uh, I would, you know, favour the former, not the latter. So see where he ends up on this one. But he's not going to be the only world leader not attending. But I think if they don't commit and then he doesn't attend, that will be pretty bad. And Brisbane will get a second NRL team after the Rugby League Commission nominated the Redcliffe Dolphins as the preferred candidate to become the 17th team in the league. 
News Corp is reporting the NRL will officially unveil the Dolphins as the winning bid this week. The team representing Brisbane's North is expected to join the NRL for the 2023 season in the first expansion of the roster since 2007. All right, in just a moment, the billionaire space race. We love hearing from you uh, here at The Briefing, particularly the stories you want us to cover because sometimes they make the best topics that we actually do. Today, our topic comes from a listener called Laura in Melbourne. Hi, it's Laura. I'm wondering if you guys can look into the evolution and progress of private space travel. We've recently seen Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson developing private space programs and wondering when ordinary people might be able to do it and when opportunities like this might pop up in Australia. See, there you go. Listener with a really fascinating question, which is why we're doing this as a briefing topic. She's right there. It's been a huge year for private space exploration. All you kids down there. I was once a child with a dream. Now I'm an adult in a spaceship. That's Richard Branson uh, talking about his Virgin Galactic flight on July 11. Along with three other crew and two pilots, they travelled 90 kilometres above the Earth's surface. Now, a week and a half later, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, made a short 11-minute journey into space in the first crewed flight for his rocket ship, New Shepard. They went slightly further than the Branson one, about 100 kilometres into space. Oh, my God! My expectations were high and they were dramatically exceeded. That was Jeff Bezos there, very enthusiastic. Um, This week, his new Shepard will make a second trip. This time they're taking Star Trek's William Shatner on board. He's the 90-year-old actor who played Captain Kirk. They're also taking an Australian physicist and engineer, Dr Chris Bosshausen. After Bezos's mission, Elon Musk was next in September with his private spaceflight company, SpaceX. Now, four people went up on a three-day mission, which travelled 585 kilometres above the Earth's surface. Yeah, so they went way further on Elon Musk's flight. The question here is, in the context of space travel over the decades, how much progress are these billionaires really making? And as Laura asked, what does it mean for ordinary people like us? When can we go? To answer those questions, we have Alan Duffy with us. He's a professor in astrophysics at Swinburne University. Alan, thank you for joining us. Compared to the achievements of NASA and the other, you know, like the Russian public government space programs over the decades, how do these billionaire programs compare? These programs are a lot smaller. They are primarily commercially driven, so they want to make money. They invest in technologies that are cheaper and in particular can be reused. Uh, SpaceX in particular has pioneered the ability to land its rockets, uh, essentially refuel them, give them a quick look over and then send them back up, hopefully vastly reducing the costs of access to space. So the entire business model is different to what has come before. It's important to realize that almost all of those innovations of SpaceX, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are based in part, or if not in whole, on NASA breakthroughs, technologies, a lot of NASA engineers. So they could only have done these incredible achievements because of the progress of NASA, but they have certainly taken that technology and innovation and applied a commercial edge to it and now seemingly made them incredibly profitable businesses. Okay, so is it all about making space tourism happen or or are they trying to push some of the boundaries of exploration and what we know about space? I really do think that they have a couple of objectives here. We know that at least for SpaceX, 
the intention has always been to reach Mars. That was the reason Elon Musk set up the company several years ago. The others are a little bit uh, less ambitious. Uh, Blue Origin just wants to reach the moon, for example. Uh, but the idea has always been to increase the number of flights, increase the size of the rockets, drive down the cost of, say, an individual seat on one of those missions. But in doing so, you're building a rocket that's just ever more capable of reaching further into space, doing more, launching more satellites, the kinds of valuable insights we get from orbit about our Earth. These kinds of rocket companies are thinking on a different level, not just this space tourism of a joyride for 15 minutes, but going beyond and indeed trying to service the broader launch community. And so far, they actually seem to be doing a pretty good job of, of making all of those things work and leveraging advances in each domain to support the other. So they do seem a little bit competitive from the outside, but you're saying in some ways they're complementary. Do they actually share their data, I guess, and help each other? Wouldn't it be better if these billionaires work together? If they seem competitive from the outside, they're definitely competitive from the inside. There is no love <laughs> loss, I think, between these billionaires. Uh, in particular, I suspect the Richard Branson stunt of pulling ahead his launch by by a week or two to just beat Jeff Bezos to the, be the first billionaire in space will have particularly irked Bezos. But it's fair to say that the public back and forth have been toned down of late. Not so many Twitter fights happening. And I think that's because they recognize that they are playing in a very regulated, uh, highly uh, risky environment. And it just doesn't look good to have these kinds of almost childish kinds of antics, amusing as they can sometimes be on Twitter. <laughs> the biggest customer is not the, the space tourist market, it is NASA. And it likely will be NASA as well as defense satellite launches, for example, for many years to come. And that means you need to show that you can launch safely. You can take their potentially billion dollar satellites up and not risk exploding on launch. Uh, that tends to drive a culture of maturity inside the teams, at least in terms of fixing the engineering challenges. And yes, it does mean sharing the data, but probably not with each other so much. If we did have a bit more uh, cooperation, we might see some better advances. You touched on something there, and that was the issue of regulation. Up until now, a lot of the space travel we've seen has been run by governments, programs like NASA. And this is a really big shakeup having private people come into this sort of domain. Are there rules? You know, you have to get a driver's license, you have to register a car. Mm. It just seems from the outside that this is a bunch of billionaires launching things into the sky. What sort of checks and balances do they have? And is it a matter of just having enough money? What's happening right now is the rules that worked when it was a monolithic entity like NASA launching from clearly one country, the US, and maybe you might have a couple of other players in space, that's completely breaking down. And now we have multiple launch providers, multiple private companies. And in fact, the largest Earth observing fleet operator in history is Planet Labs. This was in fact, the company co-founded by Chris Bosshausen, who's the Aussie who's going to space this week. These new entries have completely changed the frameworks, we're seeing a much more crowded, contested, low Earth orbit in particular. I think at this stage, everything seems to be managing the potential conflicts or at least the potential challenges for these prime real estates in orbit, primarily because everyone wants to service the vast US market. 
at some point we could find ourselves in a situation where either mistakes happen because orbits are too crowded and then we get into a very dangerous situation called the Kessler syndrome where some satellites may collide, the resulting debris cloud will in turn strike other satellites and we get this cascading effect. This is in fact with the plot line of the film Gravity and all of this shrapnel is moving at several times faster than a sniper's bullet. So it just completely destroys everything in orbit and we lose the ability to operate in orbit. So this is a situation that no one wants to see, but ultimately no one individual company or country is actually responsible. So it's the tragedy of the commons and we hope that we prevent this Kessler syndrome happening, but at least the original proponent, Donald Kessler, estimates that we're probably already at the tipping point in several locations. And that makes for a very scary immediate future if we don't start to clean up our act. So Alan Laura's question essentially asks, you know, when is all of this going to be accessible to normal people like us? And so far, you've either had to be Jeff Bezos's brother or William Shatner, Captain Kirk from Star Trek will go up <laughs> this week, or you've needed lots of money like that Dutch kid. But how far off is it that normal people could access this kind of space travel, including Australians? I think we're getting close. Uh, we're currently a seat on Virgin Galactic is going for uh, about $250,000. The price will drop over the coming years as the spacecraft size increases. It's possible it might get down to the few tens of thousands of dollars. And that would put it at a price point that not the average person, but mm. maybe someone who's mortgaged their house could <laughs> afford to enjoy, or maybe you miss every holiday cruise for several years and you save up. I don't know how the rest of your family would feel about this. These are suborbital flights. They last 15 minutes. If you want to have the true experience of going all the way to space and orbiting and seeing the world below in true space fashion, that's a SpaceX flight at this point, And that costs around $100 million potentially. So I don't think we're going to be holidaying for days in orbit. I don't think that's ever feasible. I think for us Aussies, the best we might be able to do is essentially a glorified bungee jump where you go to a very high altitude, hopefully over 100 kilometers. So you cross the Kármán line and are officially an astronaut. And then you fall back to Earth and experience that weightlessness. It's a 15-minute joyride, but man, what a joyride. Right. I guess that really opens up the question of what traveling to space really is. If it's just a 15-minute joyride where you feel some weightlessness or if it's something a lot greater than that, because that would massively affect the timeline of what's accessible to us, right? Yeah, absolutely. The Swiss investment bank UBS estimates that the value of space tourism will be about $3 billion per year within the decade. So this is wow. a, a big market. It's a growing market. But I do completely agree. I think it depends on what the actual offering is. For a lot of people, maybe that 15-minute free fall will be fine, will be enough. That will be the trip of the lifetime. This is what Chris Bosshausen is going to experience this week alongside William Shatner. To be honest, I would just pay that money to sit alongside William Shatner, actually. I think <laughs> that would be quite an experience. But the idea of a long duration, almost space hotel in orbit, which is a plan that is underway, that will forever be in the domain of the ultra, ultra wealthy. These can never be cheaper than a few million dollars simply because of the cost to launch material, the food, the water that you'll consume when you're up there. It just, just means that a long duration flight will always cost a staggering amount of money. So I think for the rest of us, if it gets down to a few tens of thousands of dollars, maybe it's the trip of a lifetime. It's 50 minutes, you get some cool astronaut training along the way. 
maybe it's cost effective, maybe it makes sense, but I think space tourism will actually always be a bit of a limited appeal. I, I just can't quite see people forgoing an ocean cruise liner for you know, five consecutive years just to get a, a 15 minute free fall, but I could be wrong. That was astrophysicist Alan Duffy from Swinburne University. Annika, how would you like to see Twiggy, Gina Reinhart and Clive Palmer competing for space travel here in Australia? Look, I just feel a little bit uncomfortable with private space travel in general. I know you get really excited about it, Tom, but I think this is something we should be leaving to governments. So as we spoke about there, they can share this information. It can be used for good. I don't know if we want to see billionaires compete in this space. Yeah, especially those rogue Aussie billionaires. <laughs> well, I guess the American ones are just as wild. I guess we see where it all ends up and it's it's up to the individual whether they want to buy the ticket and take the ride if they can afford it. Tomorrow on The Briefing, there's been a lot of talk about whether Scott Morrison will be going to the Glasgow Climate Summit. Turns out Malcolm Turnbull will be there. We're going to speak to him on tomorrow's episode. Listener.